All right, flip to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19, we're going to look at 19, 20, and 21, but I'm actually just going to read a little bit of the end of 21, so you can flip there. Harlotry in the land, Judges chapter 19 through 21, let's read 20, uh, in chapter 21, verses 19 through the end. So chapter 21, verse 19, so they said, behold, there is a feast of Yahweh from year to year in Shiloh which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and on the south side of um, Labana. Verse 20, And they commanded the sons of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie and wait in the vineyards and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And it will be when their fathers or their brothers come to contend with us, we shall say to them, Be gracious to us concerning them, because we did not take for each man of Benjamin a wife in the battle, and you did not give away your daughters to them, otherwise you would now be guilty. And the sons of Benjamin did so, and carried away wives according to their number from those who danced, whom they stole away. And they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the cities and lived in them. Then the sons of Israel went away from there, at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and each one of them went from there to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Our Father and God, you have been exceedingly gracious to us, and we ask that your spirit would help steer us towards a constant remembrance of that fountain of grace. We confess that we are tempted by our own desires and lusts to walk away from your grace and instead trust in the work of our hands. We also acknowledge that in our day there is a great idolatry and harlotry, and we confess that we want no part of it. Wash us clean by the power of your gospel and keep us close to you. Help us to be fervent in prayer and aid us in abiding by your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, it's our final message in the exposition of Judges. It's been quite a journey. Tonight is sort of an interesting passage. If you read ahead, you'll know you may have said, oh, wow, several times while reading. And uh, it's, been, it's been quite a journey uh, in Judges, and I hope and pray that it has been edifying to you. I know that in my own study, in my own preparation, it's been challenging and illuminating, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach through it. Tonight's passage, by way of a reminder, is a, it's the second of two appendices to the book. Samuel, our writer, gives us two introductions, two prologues, and prefaces, now we have two epilogues and appendices. So those bookends help us understand the social and cultural and even political context of what was going on during this particular period of Israelite history. As we have noted, the two main problems that are exemplified throughout the book, uh, but pronounced in the final two sections, are one, idolatry, and two, spiritual adultery, or what I'm calling harlotry. Now, the two, while the two may seem the same, those words, idolatry and harlotry, they're actually nuanced a bit. Both are certainly sins that need to be dealt with, but there is a difference between them. Idolatry is a deviation from the norm of what God requires in worship. 
So note that. That's what idolatry, that's my best definition I can give you. It's a deviation from the norm. Think of like a normative pattern of what God expects of us. He doesn't say in his word, get together and light your pants on fire. Okay, a lot of pastors these days do that. But that's not the case. Idolatry is a deviation from the norm of what God requires in worship. Now, this includes, obviously, worshiping false gods as well as trying to worship the true God through some sort of idol mediator. So that's a problem. So we might say that idolatry is misaligned loyalty. It's a claim to loyalty, but it's misaligned. There's some things that are in the way. Isaiah 42.8 reads, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Idolatry then, as we saw last week, is not only the erection of some figurine, this construction of a figurine made of silver or, or wood, but it's also the establishment of false worship. It's will worship, man worship, I'm going to worship God on my terms, that sort of thing. Giving your loyalty to God on your terms and your conditions. So that's idolatry. Now, in contrast, harlotry or spiritual adultery is a deviation from the norm of what God requires in ethics and behavior. So idolatry is a deviation from the norm of what God requires in our worship of him. But harlotry or spiritual adultery, which is nuanced a bit, that's a deviation from the norm of what God requires in our ethics and behavior. Now, when I say spiritual adultery, I'm not limiting the adulterous lust to rebel against God through forbidden activities to only the heart, obviously. It's not only about intangible metaphysical things like our feelings, our lusts in our minds and hearts that we just keep to ourselves, those types of things. Rather, the spiritual of this is meant to convey that the harlotry and adultery is covenantal apostasy against God. That is, when we lust for some deviation from God's ethical norms, like, don't murder, but I really want to murder people, a.k.a. abortion, when we deviate from that, from that norm, those lusts, if they are not repented of, they lead us to the actual practice of some sort of wickedness. So obviously, sin starts in the heart, but it flows out of the heart, and that's the problem we have. And that could be sexual sin, murder, and so on. But... So idolatry and spiritual whoredom are two sides of the same rebellious coin. They're two sides to the same rebellious coin, and that's what Samuel emphasizes for us. At the center of the moral breakdown of the social order lies the problem of the Levites. The last two sections of this book are all focused on a Levite. We're going to visit another Levite here tonight and see what he had going on. The moral breakdown, according to the book of Judges, is a failure with regard to the Levites, and especially their failure to image Yahweh to the people. That was their job. They were to reflect God to the people. And the people, of course, represent the bride of Yahweh. So as a result, people did whatever was right in their own eyes, because like Samson, they didn't have any eyes. They were blind. So our eyes come from God. Why, do you, why else do you think of the New Testament, the book of Acts? Saul, blinded, has to go to Ananias and his, the scales come off and then he can see. The, all of us know the song Amazing Grace. I once was blind, now I see. This, our eyes come from God. We need to be able to see with his eyes. So without him, we're blind. And we have moral anarchy that takes place. Look at America. 
Now, Judges explains what we call the Canaanization of Israel, the land of Canaan, the Canaanization of Israel. That is, Judges explains how Israel turns into Canaan, how they turn into Canaan. The very people that they were told to conquer, they didn't conquer them. That's been the prevailing problem since Judges 1 verse 1. They didn't conquer the way they were supposed to, but now they're turning into the land of Canaan. There is no king. And by the way, the, because they're turning into the land of Canaan, there's no vision. There's no vision. They can't see. There is no king to fight. There's no king to uphold the Torah, the law of God in this society. And they, uh, they don't take seriously Yahweh's kingship. As a result, the people live by their own rules. High-handed sins deserve equal punishments, but even this principle of Scripture is often ignored in the book of Judges. Instead of trusting God's leadership and obediently conquering the land of, of Canaan, Christianizing it along the way, which is what they were supposed to do, Israel becomes Canaanized due to their lack of obedience. So our text tonight may seem very grotesque. In fact, it is. If you read ahead, it's shocking. It's appalling. It's rated R to the... 10th degree, okay? But I assure you there's more here than meets the eye, so let's review our text. We're going to spend quite a bit of time, just I want to summarize as we go. Now, chapter 19. Chapter 19 explains Benjamin's grave sin. Ben did not do well here. Benjamin has a problem. Not you, by the way, Ben. Now, verses 1 and 2, we're told about the Levite and his concubine who is unfaithful. There's a man, this is, he's a Levite, he's a priest of God, he's supposed to reflect Yahweh to the people. He has a concubine. She is unfaithful to him in the marriage. And as a result, she leaves him and returns to her father in Bethlehem. She was an unendowered wife, meaning that the dowry payment usually went to the woman so she could be you know, married and have full rights, full protection, legal rights in that regard, so that had the husband died or he was unfaithful, she would have three years worth of wages to, almost like an insurance policy, to have in case of some sort of destitution, whatever that looked like. But the concubine did not. The dowry in this case went to the father. So the Levite gave three years worth of wages to the father, and she was a concubine, and that's what constitutes the status of concubinage. There why husband and wife but they're not full they don't have the same legal rights so different type of way to thinking but that's the way it was now because of her unfaithfulness the, the levi has a choice um, but he chooses not to seek the death penalty for her unfaithfulness kind of reminds us of mary and joseph in that story the story's meaning is obvious already from the get-go yahweh is the levite in this situation the israel is the concubine Israel has been unfaithful repeatedly over and over, violating God's word, and the Levite goes after her. Israel's been unfaithful. God still pursues them. Unlike the prior story with the wayward Levite, so far this Levite is doing his job correctly. He is supposed to do this. And you may be reminded of the book of Hosea in the future. Hosea and Gomer, same story. Now look at verses 3, three through 10. The, the Levite goes after her, traveling to Bethlehem to the father's house, and tries to persuade her to return. And that, of course, was a successful four-day visit with her father. 
they were going to leave the next day. And he says, oh, stay some, you know, I think like Italian, like, oh, stay some longer, you know. And, and they, uh, terrible accent, but it, you get the point. And, oh, they stay again another day. And then the next day they're getting ready to leave. The father says, oh, no, stay some longer, you know. We'll have bread, wine, it'll be great. And they stay. And so there's this tension in the narrative. Like, what is going on? Why does the dad want them to stay and not leave? Well, there's a reason for that. The theme of returning to the father's house is like a return to Egypt and thus idolatry. So the Levite should be out of there. He has a job to do to reflect Yahweh to the people. But the father wants him to stay longer and longer. You might remember how many times did Moses go back and forth with Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's like, yeah, okay, sure. No, just kidding. Over and over, this back and forth. This is an echo of Egypt. James Jordan writes, If there is a message for Israel here, it is that they are being dragged down by too much familiarity with the house of their father-in-law, which is to say too much familiarity with the house of that paganism from which they had been delivered. The back and forth, the pleading from the father for the couple to stay, there's this tension in the narrative. In other words, the false gods are always beckoning for you to come back to them. That's what they want. They want you to stay. Now, in verses 11 through 21, it gets interesting. After leaving Bethlehem, finally they leave the house. After leaving Bethlehem, and they arrive at dusk to the Benjaminite, the Benjamite city of Gibeah. And an old man, they're in the town square, nobody will take them in, but an old man comes and invites them to stay the night at his house. They were in the town square, nobody wanted to be hospitable to them. And that's kind of where you went to find a place to stay. Nobody's coming. They're frustrated. What do we do? Old man comes along. Don't know anything about him. He's just that he's an old man. And part of the, part of the interesting thing here is that the Levite, he didn't want to stay within the reach of the pagans. He wanted to be with his fellow Israelites. Surely they're going to take care of him, right? I mean, surely they're going to provide and help. Here's a man who walks into the house of the Lord in the tabernacle at Shiloh, but now he's homeless he isn't welcome in anyone's house. Now, we're introduced to Jebus, which is, uh, Jabus, which is actually Jerusalem. And it was supposed to have been conquered, but it remained in the hands of the pagan. The pagans had taken over. Thus, the Levite can't rest there, which he, had, he, had been able, he should have been able to be in Jerusalem of all places, but he couldn't stay there. So he goes to his fellow Israelite friends, the Benjaminites, over there in Gibeah. Now, Ramah, in verse 13, you'll note, is mentioned because Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin in Ramah way back in Genesis. Don't forget that story. Everything is being undone from what happened with Jacob and Rachel. This is where things start to become a problem. Everything from Genesis is seemingly undone. Israel has now become Sodom. We're going to see that in a second. Un unholiness, unsanctification, uh, disobedience is now routine. So the old man, he's the only righteous one in the city, apparently. He takes them into his house, and he's not even from Gibeah anyway, so he's already an outsider. And that reminds us of the story of Lot. Remember when Lot was rescued by Abraham, and they decided where they were going to go, and Lot looks over to Sodom and Gomorrah and says, Oh, yeah, that looks great. That looks like a fine place. So he goes there. Lot's not from there, but he goes there. The old man's not from Gibeah, but he goes there. So we have this story of Lot all over again here in the text. 
And remember with Lot, the angels came and they protect him because the men there are pounding on the door and they, they want the same thing. We'll see in a second. But the angels protect Lot and his family. The question is, will the Levite protect them in a similar manner? So the old man here, in a sense, he's kind of a mysterious person. We don't know his name. He's kind of like God. He brings us into his home. He washes our feet. He gives us some of his provisions. He shares a meal with us. Uh, the same theme over and over. If you remember Gideon way back, Gideon shared a meal with God. Jephthah, same story. So here we have sort of this mysterious person that shows up. Will this continue, though? Now, during their stay in verses 22 through 28, here we go again, Sodom all over again. The wicked men of the town, they surround the home and they're beating on the door. They're demanding that the Levite, him, be sent out to, uh, so that they can copulate with him. All right? Just like vileness, like mind-blowing vileness here. Same thing with Lot. <laughs> okay? Who are these men that are with you? Bring us out so we may know them. Well, that's a problem. The old man refuses to do so. Instead, the old man offers his virgin daughter and the concubine. Now, the question in the text is, well, did the Levite give permission for his concubine wife to be able to be sent out? I think he did, probably with, given what we know later. So the men refuse the offer. No, we want the Levite. We want him. Well, regardless of what they say, the old man sends out the concubine and the men of the city rape and physically abuse her throughout the night. Horror. Horror upon horror. Physical abuse, like in every sense of that word. At some point, they let her go by the morning, and she crawls back to the house, only to die on the doorstep. This is Israel's condition before Yahweh. They're nearly dead because of their immorality and their sin. Now, in this case also, the Levite does not lay down his life for his wife, which is, of course, we know like what Jesus has done for the church. He didn't intervene. He should have, but he didn't. And this is the response of the Levites to Israel's apostasy. And frankly, it's pastors today. I'll just say it. It's a zero interventionist policy. Those are social issues. Issues I'm not getting involved. I can't preach against taxation or the COVID vaccine, or I can't preach against those things. Zero interventionist policy. I can't help but see the church in this right now. Oh, and what is the Levite doing while she's out with those men? He's sleeping. While Israel descends into utter madness, he's sleeping. He wanted his marriage, yes, but he didn't want his wife. Her all-night horror went on while he was sleeping, and after waking up, when she was lying there at the door, he tells the woman to get up. In Hebrew, kind of a command. Get up. Well, she's not responding. She's dead. And this isn't Hosea rescuing Gomer here. This is, again, a nightmare of a situation. The woman haphazardly stumbles to the door at sunrise. Note the sin took place at night. And then she gets to the door by sunrise and dies. Remember the sun language of Samson, same thing going on. But she stumbles to the door. She's without child. She's without husband. She's without protection. She's without dignity. She has had everything, everything taken from her. 
And the only thing she has left is utter destitution and ruin. And she doesn't even have her life but for a few seconds before she dies. Now, the, the lesson, albeit cruel and unusual, is obvious. Instead of faithfulness, obedience, and giving birth to righteousness in the world, which pushes back the darkness, Israel had chosen the dark path of disobedience, of harlotry, and ultimately death. The Levites had failed to protect Israel, and it is illustrated in his lack of protection of his wife. And as a result, Israel stumbled into high-handed apostasy. The fact that the men of Gibeah wanted the Levite and not the virgin women goes to show just how debased they were. Romans 1 stuff. Just how low they had stumbled. They wanted God's man. They wanted God's anointed. And they wanted to take God's symbol and desecrate it in any way, shape, or form. Christ, we know, took this upon himself on the cross, but not this Levite. His passivity allowed the debauchery. The Levite is of their father, Adam. This is where the story takes an interesting turn. In, in, in verses 29 through 30, the, the Levite takes the corpse back, back to Ephraim, only to cut the body into 12 pieces, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. He sends one piece of the concubine's body to the 12 tribes in the land, and it shakes the nation to its core. They are awakened by this act of injustice and speak up against perversion living in the land of Benjamin. The act of cutting the body reminds us of, of ceremonial sacrifices that happened at the temple. So this woman was sacrificed unto the Lord. God's going to redeem it. The covenant, though, has been torn asunder. Uh, like the leftists on the Supreme Court steps last week, um, Israel had lost its mind and thus lost its way. We want the blood. We want the blood. Now, we have here an important symbol. This, the covenant breach was so severe that the full process of Israel's canonization is now complete. They are just like the people they were supposed to conquer. They are just like the world. They are just like these pagans living out in the hillsides who are burning their children. Jeremiah, too, has much to say about that as well. So the nation, like this woman, this nation is dead. This nation is torn apart. It has been utterly unfaithful to God. It is a mess. An avenging moment must come. Redemption awaits, but judgment goes first. Now, chapter 20. That's just chapter 19. Going to be here a little extra tonight. Chapter 20 is Israel's response to Benjamin's sin. What is Israel as a nation going to do to Benjamin's grave sin here? In verses 1 through 17, the leaders of the ten tribes, they meet at Mitzpah, to decide their response. What are they going to do about this disgusting act of violence? What are they going to, how are they going to respond? Now, the Levite, with half-truths, or at least held-back truths, he explains how the debauched Benjamites murdered his concubine at Gibeah. So he tells, retells the story, but he leaves out some things, like, I don't know, I forgot to help. He didn't tell them that part. But the tribal heads, they conclude that they must attack Gibeah and destroy the criminals forthwith. That's verses 8 through 11. So the Benjamites, they have gone so far off the rails in this disgusting thing that they refuse to give up the criminals. That's how bad it is. They don't want to give up the evil men in Gibeah who had done this. They defend them. They, they said, all right, you want war? We'll take it. We'll take war against you. They defend the wickedness. 
Instead of, instead of uh, repenting, they allow Israel to go ahead and attack, attack, and they decided they would rather fight the war. Now, here's the war, okay? Lord of the Rings moment again, Minas Tirith, you know. Think of it this way. You have 400,000 men of Israel who were gathered with military leaders and squadrons ready for battle. 400,000. That is no small army. Benjamin has 26,700 men. Okay? 400,000, 26,000. Okay? You, that's, it's obviously, it's over. But the problem is it doesn't go as planned. It doesn't go as planned. We're back at the beginning of Judges. Israel gathered for war, except this time things are so bad that they're going up against their own brethren instead of the Canaanites. So peace is offered to them in accordance with Deuteronomy 20. They want peace. Surrender the men. We will execute them. We'll move on with our day. They don't want that. They want to go to war. So they go to war. They stood with the criminals, sealing their fate. By the way, oftentimes... We cannot see the injustice of someone as close as a brother or a sister. These men were their people, and they don't, they don't want to side with them. Sometimes that happens. But Israel, Israel is prepared to burn it all to the ground as a ceremonial judgment against them. They, they are furious with this, that this took place. They're going to burn it to the ground. Benjamin's done. They're toast. In verses 18 through 48, we have the battles. There are three battles that take place, all right? It was a slaughter on all accounts, yes, but we're reminded again of, of Judges 1 and 2 because Judah went up first against the Canaanites because kings go first, and now Judah has to go up first again. The Benjaminites, though, again, 400,000 versus 26,000 in war. The Benjamites, though, they, they managed to kill 22,000 men from Israel in the first battle. You, you think it should be over, right? But it didn't. Things didn't go well, and the reason is because they're all guilty of this. None, it's not like pure and holy Israel versus the wicked Benjamites. They're all guilty of this, as Judges tells us. So the first battle does not go well. 22,000 men of Israel are dead. The people stop by that evening and say, okay, we need to ask God if we should keep fighting. But they ask God if we should keep fighting with no repentance and no regard for their own failings, their own sins, their own weaknesses. But Yahweh says, yeah, you should go the next day and fight. Good. Battle number two, day two. Guess what? Same issue. 18,000 men of Israel, experienced swordmen, swordsmen, the text says, they die. 22,000 plus 18,000. How many is that? Do some quick math, somebody. 40,000. What percentage is 40,000 of 400,000? 10%. A tithe. There's a tithe here. 10%. Gone. That's 22 through 25. Now the third battle, the third day is always a day of new beginnings. The third day, third com battle commences though, but it's after they seek God's direction. They fast, they confess their sins, and they offer sacrificial offerings to Yahweh. They're finally getting their act together. The rest of the tribe, set, they set up an ambush. They defeat the Benjamite warriors. That's verses 26 through 45. And then in verses 46 through 48, we learn that the tribe of Benjamin, they lost over 25,000 men that day. They only left 600 men from Benjamin alive after all was said and done. Now the first two battles, remember Joshua at Ai, the sin of Achan, 
Achan had sinned, and so they lost the first battle. Joshua had to go and deal with Achan. Achan's dead. They win the next battle. But that's because repentance always wins the battle. That's why abolitionists have been demanding the church to repent of its apathy for the sin of abortion for a decade now, at least. Going after the church and saying, we need to repent of this. That's how you get the victory. Now, Benjamin had abused the wife. Israel returns them a favor, gleaning them to death. That is bringing calamity on them. And look at verse 35. We're still in chapter 20. Then Yahweh defeated Benjamin before Israel. Take note of that. You see it there? Then Yahweh defeated Benjamin before Israel. God was at war. The smoke that rose in verse 40 reminds us of the whole burnt sacrifice to the Lord. Gibeah had become Sodom and Gomorrah 2.0, and it too must be burned. Look at verse 48. Now the men of Israel returned to the sons of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. Both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found, they also set on fire all the cities which they had found. The whole thing has to come down. Deuteronomy 13 is carried out here, principles of war. You offer peace, if they don't want peace, you destroy them. That's how, that's the just war principle. Now in chapter 21, we're going to try to hurry here. We have the question of the future of Benjamin. 600 men are left. That's it. They're almost totally wiped out. What's going to happen to them? Well, God graciously restores them is what happens. This whole saga reminds us of Sodom, yes, but it's also a reference to the later, the latter Sodomites, if you recall, the descendants of Lot's daughters who conceived after getting him drunk. And the descendants, guess who's the descendants of Lot? The Moabites and the Midianites. They were confronted by Moses and Phinehas in Numbers 31. Here we are again. Judgment starts with the house of God. So in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, there is sorrow that plagues the nation. Sorrow. Sorrow plagues the nation. Mourning has happened. There, everything that's taken place, it's just depressing. The wickedness, the judgment that ensued, they're sorrowful. The tribes of Israel mourn. They mourn the near loss of an entire tribe. There's a further problem, though. They swore not to allow any of their daughters to marry a man from Benjamin. Why? Well, they were told not to marry any of the Canaanites in the very first part of Judges. And here we're at the end. Benjamin has become Canaan. They cannot marry. So Benjamin needs to be born again or their tribe will die off. God needs to act. So sacrifices for atonement for Benjamin are offered. Only by grace through faith with a peace offering can Benjamin be restored. And then look at verses 8 through 15. In order to get out of their predicament, this is what's hilarious about this passage. In order to get around this predicament, Israel's leaders agree to give the men of Benjamin all the virgins taken from Jabesh Gilead. Now, this city was to be destroyed completely as a whole burnt sacrifice. This town refused to come and help and aid Israel when they went against Benjamin. When they discussed in Mitzvah their war against Benjamin. So after raiding the town, there were only 400 virgins who were discovered. How many men were in Benjamin left? 600. They only found 400 ladies. So we have a problem. There's, we need 200 more. 
Look at verse 15. And the people were sorry for Benjamin because Yahweh had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. They're trying to restore, but the Benjamites, they, the reality is they've failed miserably by allowing all this debauchery to happen. That's what pagans do, though. I mean, why did you act like the world? And they didn't just allow it. Benjaminites, they participated in it. They defended it the whole time. But they are only restored by God's grace. A sinner is only restored by God's grace, period. They are Adams. They need Eve, so they need to be recreated in order to exercise godly dominion. In verses 16 through 25, 200 men are left without wives. But we have a plan. <laughs> this is so funny, this text. The wives are given permission to essentially kidnap and steal away the young virgins who are dancing at the festival at Shiloh, perhaps the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, did they actually kidnap and steal them? Uh, James Jordan argues, he's quite persuasively, and I agree with him, contrary to most every other commentator, um, the dancing girls were actually doing mating calls. Now, we think of mating calls like you know, animals in the wilderness who either throw their feathers up in an impressive way to get the girl, the girl bird or peacock or whatever. And uh, I, isn't that what they do? I don't know. So... Um, Anyway, don't go there, Jason. All right, so the dancing girls are essentially doing mating calls, and uh, what they're doing is these dancing moves. This was a normal thing, okay? It was a normal thing, and they went out, and they mimicked childbearing and dancing, and the reason that they did it was to suggest that they would be great wives and mothers on Mother's Day. Here we are. And uh, so it was a normal festival, a normal practice, and that's kind of like how you got a wife. And you looked around and say, wow, yeah, she seems like a great woman. She dances really well. So again, normal custom, a way for a young man to win a bride. Now, I consider it like a, a glorified, sanctified talent show, I guess. But it was a secret, though. It was a secret what took place. Because the fathers were told, they were not told that these men were Benjamites. And, and it's funny because apparently God knows how to circumvent his own oaths. So they get them and no one tells anybody. It's just sort of like hush, hush. Go get, go get the girls. Go ahead. They watch them dance and then they go, they get 200 of them. Hallelujah. We have a future. <laughs> So it's, it's, it's Yahweh who sets this up. It's God's festival, and he gives his restored Adams a new Eve. Salvation and deliverance of the remaining tribe of Benjamin is only present because of the substitutionary sacrifice, the destruction of God's enemies, and God's grace giving them the wives. This is a story of redemption. It's a story of salvation. It's what the gospel tells us all about. All of it is grace. And then look at verse 25. The book comes... Closes on the same note. We've seen this repeatedly. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel's anarchic inclinations as a result of Baalism or humanism has led them to a place where they do not accept the kingship of Yahweh. Still, that Israel continued to rebel against Yahweh does not in any way reflect poorly on God's performance. 
He has rescued them time and time and time and time again, proving his faithfulness and wherewithal to deliver them. How many of you can look back in your life and say, ah, yes, God has delivered me from so much. And you can either arrogantly assume that it was your doing or you can now in the present glorify God and live your life accordingly. The problem was not God and his faithfulness. It was autonomy, this self-law. I want to be a man on my own terms. The failure of the Levites is pronounced. It's the foremost reason for this humanistic impulse. They failed miserably, as these last two sections explain. Now, a couple points of application. The reality is we know that Israel was given a king, Yahweh himself. He was the one who had delivered them from the den of their father's, father-in-law's house, the house of Egypt. He had rescued them and rather handedly. Having delivered them from that house of iniquity, Yahweh had established Israel as a new house, a covenantal house, whereby they would have a land, they would flourish, they would be blessed, they would grow. And one aspect of this new construction house was the giving of the law, like the Ten Commandments. Israel was to do whatever was right in Yahweh's eyes, not their own. They were to please God, not themselves. Now, there are fundamentally two religions that exist in the world. There are only two religions in the world, and both of them have their lordship paradigms. There is the kingship of Christ and his immutable, unchanging ethics. And then there's the kingship of man and man's subjective ethics. That's it. Those are religions. If it's not Christianity, it's everything else. It's either Christ or it's autonomy. It's either God's law or man's conspiratorial lusts. Those are the only options we have before us, and the church of Jesus Christ is going to have to decide which one it wants, and she must demand it. See, what plagues us today is unbelief. Let me explain. Unbelief. Unbelief is not the absence of belief. Rather, it's misdirected belief. Man finds himself in this world in an ineradicable situation. He is made in God's image. He lives and moves in God's world, and thus he is accountable to God whether he likes it or not. Man is an analog, meaning all of his existence, his thinking, his feeling, his doing, all of it is predicated on him being a creature of God, like it or not. And being a religious creature, man is, has to invent some set of truths in order to shield himself from accountability of God. That's why they keep saying, you're taking away women's rights, you're taking away reproductive, as if reproduction didn't already just happen. Just stupidity. Like the arguments are so dumb. But that's what you do when you live your life on your terms. This man, this person, doesn't just accept the facts, which is why presuppositionalism is far more potent of doing apologetics and evangelism. I'm going to talk about that on the abolitionist conference. But the thing is, unbelief plagues the unregenerate, like, like those who really want to keep feeding Molech to the, in, the blood of infants. However, if we're not careful, unbelief can derail the covenant people of God as well, just like it had done to Israel. I think the church suffers from this today. Just unbelief. Don't believe in the kingship of Christ. Don't believe in his law word. Just don't believe that he can footstool the nations. None of it. The human mind, when left to itself, blinds its own eyes in order to indulge in its own fantasies. 
And that's the real danger of trying to live life with subjective ethics. They, the health of any society, I'll tell you right now, it's here in this text, it's here in our world. The health of any society is gauged by how our women and children are being treated. Bottom line, you show me a nation that butchers its children, I'll show you a nation that's about to burn. 65 million? You don't think God's angry with us? When the people of God fail to image God, they begin to image the world. They reflect the world. <clears throat> Sin takes us way further than we want to go. Sin always costs us way more than we had budgeted for, which means that we must learn to want what God gives and not want what God doesn't give. And what does God want? He wants righteousness. He wants justice. He wants mercy. He wants interposition for the weak, self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. He wants love. He wants service. He wants courage. He wants humility. He wants grace. God wants us to image him in this world. And if it's a communicable attribute of God, something that, that we are capable of reenacting and doing, then we must do it. Wicked people exploit and dominate. Godly men rescue and protect. Justice must be determined by what God says, not what we think. These are all things you can pull from this text. What is right is only truly right when we see it from God's eyes and not ours. It's, it's never enough. Listen, and <laughs> this is one thing that I, I think is if we can walk away with anything, it's never enough to just hate evil. You must hate evil from a heart that loves God. And why? Well, because believers are judged more strictly. If God's standards and requirement for wiping out the Canaanites was unyielding because justice matters that much, how much more for the people of God in covenant with Him who are perpetuating the same sins? Eternal ruin is far more, it's far worse a calamity to endure than temporary devastation. Look, Benjamin had failed. The criminals in Gibeah had failed. The Levites' failures. What kind of deliverer do we need? Well, that's what Judges points us to. The deliverer we need is the prophet, the priest, the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light, 2 Timothy 1.10. That is the kind of deliverer we need. The, the kind of deliverer whose mercies are so extensive that we are not consumed in judgment that we deserve, but instead delivered from it. And I'll end with this. The main lesson of Judges is, is this. The church, that is the people of God, must reflect to the world the salvation and kingdom that Christ has brought to it. Bottom line. In our living, in our business endeavors, in our activism, in being moms and dads, in being children, in our, all of our ethics, all of our speech, our families, we need to reflect it accordingly. Jesus is Lord, so act like it. That's Judges. Jesus is Lord, act like it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this extensive study of, of the book of Judges that you've given us in your word, and we, we pray that it would shape us and change our minds and help us to better reflect what you've called us to. Help us to reflect to the world the salvation and kingdom that Christ has brought to it. Uh, Lord, we know that the wickedness we see in the town square, the wickedness we see all over the place in all layers of government, Lord, that's there because we have failed. So would you teach us to act like it, to act like you 
Jesus, our Lord, because you are. I pray that you would raise us up, that we would bow before your kingdom and your reign. And Lord, as we are courageous and bold, I pray that you would bring many to yourself. In Christ's name we pray, amen.